0: News Power Hour. Well, Welcome, it's the 12th of October, it's Tuesday all day today and uh, we've got a really interesting show coming up for you this evening. Uh, you'll be hearing from Koki Koyman in just a little while. He went through the list of banking shares with me to say those who are, in fact there's one banking share that is way higher than the price it was at pre-COVID. There are a couple that are just below where they were during the COVID uh, or before COVID. And there are two that are offering huge value uh, relative to where they were before COVID. The one, uh, it was trading at 280 Rand before COVID. is now 160 Rand. And the other one was trading at 100 Rand. It's now at 60 Rand. So all of that coming up later in the program with Koki Koiman. We'll also be hearing from Stephen Nathan. And here he's uh, revisiting somebody he knows well and uh, gave his accolades to. We spoke about it last night on the program. Alan Greenblow, uh, a former uh, boss of mine, a mentor, a wonderful human being who the plaudits just keep coming in for this guy. He was one of those quiet uh, individuals. In other words, he didn't push himself into the limelight, but he was beavering away, doing things for people who weren't really being looked after. And there you're talking about the millions of South Africans who have got investments in asset management companies, primarily in retirement funds. So we'll be hearing uh, from Mr. Greenblow in just, uh, sorry, not Mr. Greenblow, Mr. um, Stephen Nathan, talking about Alan Greenblow. And we're also picking up there on the story of the South African government banning the use of imported cement in any infrastructure programs to do with the government. It's a big story, this one. Uh, Of course, PPC, uh, shareholders are delighted. But when government starts intervening in this way, is it a good thing, even though in this case it might seem to be justified because the cement guys say cement's being dumped in South Africa? But actually, where do you draw the line? Is it next going to be some other... uh, equipment that is used in infrastructure which can no longer be imported where do we end in this once you go into this kind of a interference from a centralized government authority you do start giving yourself a big question marks about first of all we pay more taxpayers are going to pay more and secondly where do you draw the line so very interesting conversation with Stephen nathan coming up there We'll also hear on the latest episode of Smoke Screen from James Ball. And of course, our partners in London, the Financial Times, have got the usual update of the global scene, where once more they bring us uh, into understanding what's being spoken about in boardrooms all over the world, not just here in South Africa. So you've got a good show coming up uh, over the next 60 minutes. Before we get there, though, Jared Neves uh, has got the insights into what the BizNews community are consuming at the
1: moment. Jared? I'm Jared Neves, and you are the most accessed stories across BizNews platforms. On our website, biznews.com, the tribute to Alan Greenblow remains the best read piece, followed by David Shapiro discussing the JCD listing trend and Paulo Sullivan's piece on South African airways. On Business TV on YouTube, Investment Insights with David Shapiro, an exclusive look at the launch of the Cape Town Stock Exchange, and yesterday's Flash Briefing are among the most popular videos viewed by community members. And then on Business Radio on Spotify, yesterday's Power Hour was the best listened to podcast. Following closely is Investment Insights with David Shapiro and RIP Alan Greenblow a journalistic giant who never lost his moral compass.
0: Jerry, that's good stuff. We uh, are going to be talking a little later this evening uh, with the Chief Operating Officer of South African Airways. So look forward to that in the program tomorrow. And I've got no doubt that the story you wrote today about car prices and the reason why they're going through the roof is going to be uh, well-featured over the next 24 hours. Just very briefly, uh, what is it that you found?
1: So basically, the shortage of semiconductor chips, uh, which is a result of COVID-19, has seen uh, car makers across the world, even the big ones like Toyota, having to halt or uh, slow down production of their vehicles. And this, in turn, has obviously caused the shortage, uh, which has <laughs> stressed out dealerships and consumers because prices are going up. And the most surprising thing for me is, is that uh, premium car makers like Mercedes-Benz and BMW, have now decided to actually keep um, not really a shortage, but a slow production in a sense and increase demand so that they can have their prices remain higher. And uh, obviously their focus is now uh, in the future to continue making higher-end vehicles where the profit margins are higher.
0: What an interesting story, and it's uh, well worth going on to biznews.com to pick up on that
2: one.
3: Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different the daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed to life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Nadia Swart has got the news headlines. Nadia?
4: Less than three weeks after taking to the skies again, South African Airways is already facing a backlash from staff, cancelled flights and support problems. In the latest blow to the airline, SAA workers represented by the South African Cabin Crew Association and NUMSA will picket outside Airways Park office in Kempton Park on Tuesday. These workers are unhappy about unfair working conditions, including a 35% pay cut and the airline's bloated management structure. Making matters worse is that there is no deal between SAA's new equity partner, Takato Consortium, and the Department of Public Enterprises. President Sol Ramaphosa has called for Mandla Humsibi to immediately step aside after the MEC of Agriculture in Humpumalanga appeared in the Nelspruit Magistrates Court on Monday on charges of murder as a result of a deadly ANC branch meeting in August. Humsibi was remanded after handing himself over in August. Business Day reliably understands that he was involved in a violent incident at an ANC branch meeting that left two people shot dead and two others wounded. Upon election as party president in December 2017, Ramaphosa called for the end of factions, but the problem has persisted amid competition for nominations into local positions and the potential to access tenders if elected to public office. Factionalism, accusations of vote rigging and violence have also marred the ANC's process to select candidates for the polls. And National Treasury has prohibited the use of imported cement in all government-funded projects, giving a significant boost to local producers. Treasury issued a circular this week detailing the new limits, which call for 100% local procurement. All state entities, including national, provincial and local authorities and state-owned enterprises, must, from November 4th this year, stipulate in tender invitations that only South African-produced cement, produced with locally sourced raw materials, be allowed. The move forms part of the government's plan to boost jobs, and local economic activity through localization.
0: Interesting story that last one uh, when we have a look at the way the markets perform today PPC which is up by nine percent yesterday picked up another seven and a half percent today so if you're a PPC shareholder uh, you'll be very happy with what government has done but uh, stand by for what Stephen Nathan uh, said, tells us a little later because there is a Another side to every story, and certainly another side to this story. Uh, also, as far as news-driven share price movements are concerned, the Risa PLC came out with a production report today, and that saw the share price jumping up seven and a half percent as well. So, those two big movers on uh, the announcement or on news flow. As far outside of that, the markets generally were quiet. Uh, all share index slightly lower. Uh, the top forty. Also, um, about a quarter of percent off, and resources after that splendid day yesterday, half a percent lower. The rand, fourteen rand ninety six against the US dollar, just over twenty rand to the pound. That's twenty rand thirty three cents, and seventeen rand twenty five against the euro. Uh, right now in the United States, uh, it's a little bit like what's going on in South Africa or went on in South Africa today. Uh, pretty much level pegging on the markets there, uh, with the Dow futures. Up slightly, and the uh, S and P down fractionally. Uh, so not a whole lot of action happening on this Tuesday, the twelfth of October. The gold price was five dollars lower at um, seventeen hundred and sixty-seven dollars an ounce. But the Kruger Rand price, uh, because of the rand actually weakening slightly, uh, is today a little bit stronger, twenty-one rand a Kruger Rand higher. As far as individual movers on the big shares are concerned. After a good run yesterday on a stronger oil price, Sassel was down by 4% today. Anglo-American, another one of yesterday's big winners, was down by 2%, so giving back some of those gains. And NASPASS nice was 2% lower as well. On the upside, a trading statement to come out of Altron Group has seen Bytes jump up 9%. Another offshore company, Karoo, was 6.5% higher and good old bouncy bounce Steinhoff uh, picked up 4% today after losing about the, the same amount yesterday. Old Mutual was uh, the most traded in volume share on the JSE today. Didn't move much. Uh, similarly, First Rand was a 50 cents improver, uh, about just about 1% to 61 Rand 50. Again, we're going to have a lot to discuss later on the banking shares and where they've been going.
3: This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes.
2: Today is Tuesday, October 12th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Oil prices keep going up and up, and two of the most famous names in private equity are stepping down from the company they founded nearly half a century ago. Plus, the billionaire space race may not be much of a race after all, because Elon Musk is so far ahead.
5: You know, nobody else is being able to catch up with him. And if anything, he's getting further ahead.
2: I'm Lauren Fedor, in for Mark Filipino, And here's the news you need U.S. crude oil prices hit a seven-year high yesterday. The increase is driven by fears that demand is outstripping supply. The benchmark West Texas Intermediate went past $82 a barrel and ended the day just over $80. Oil prices have been rising as the global economy has rebounded and amid a shortage of natural gas. American consumers are now paying more at the pump than they have in seven years, making oil prices a potential liability, for the Biden administration. And a big changing of the guard on Wall Street. Yesterday, Henry Kravis and George Roberts stepped down as co-CEOs of KKR. They founded the firm nearly half a century ago and are known for pioneering the private equity buyout.
6: And really took that from a niche industry in the 1970s into one of the most important pieces of Wall Street.
2: Antoine Gara covers private equity in the U.S. for the FT.
6: And in that process, they also sort of engendered this dramatic change in corporate America where companies were run more efficiently and uh, management was heavily incentivized to increase earnings and a company's stock price.
2: Back in the 1970s, when Kravis and Roberts started KKR, corporate America was widely seen as inefficient and like a country
6: club. There were huge layers of management. It was really ripe for disruption. And the other change that happened in that era was the Michael Milken financed junk bond, which allowed investors like Kravis and Roberts to raise the debt to buy increasingly sizable and important companies. So it was really a confluence of complacent, overburdened corporations that were trading at actually a real discount to their intrinsic value or the sum of the parts of their assets. And so these financiers like Kravis and Roberts were able to raise money buy the companies, make them more efficient and pay back the debt by either selling assets or using cash flow to pay down debt. And that's really changed in recent years. Now, corporations are run much more like in the mold of the way a KKR would run a corporation, And so it's actually forced firms like KKR to expand into new markets and and actually change the way they do buyouts.
2: Investors will be keeping a close eye on KKR's new co-CEOs, Joe Bai and Scott Nuttall, as they usher in a new era at one of Wall Street's most influential financial enterprises. We've been following the space race among billionaires like Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk. But the race isn't really that close.
5: You know, nobody else is being able to catch up with him. And if anything, he's getting further ahead.
2: The FT's Richard Waters is talking about Elon Musk, the founder of SpaceX. Richard says that Musk is succeeding, while Jeff Bezos and his company Blue Origin have struggled with delays in developing rocket engines.
5: Rocket launch is what it's all about. It's having an, an efficient launch vehicle that can get you and all your customers' payloads up to orbit at very low cost. You know, this is where Musk has been well ahead of the game. It's something like 13 years since you know he first put a rocket into orbit. And at the time, it was an amazing moment. And the fact that really no other private company has been able to do that since is really just a mark of what an amazing achievement it was. And until somebody else manages to do that, I think he's got the field pretty much to himself.
2: Could you talk about Musk's technology and how exactly it's outpacing the competition?
5: It all comes down to the Falcon 9. This is the rocket that really has become the workhorse for getting... Commercial payloads into space. You know, this year the Falcon Nine has accounted for more than half of all launches into orbit. If you exclude China and Russia and their own space programs, so it's really now dominating the market, and it's done that just by bringing down costs tremendously. And you know, I, I think of this is very much what Musk did at Tesla. He spotted a technology that was going to become commercial. And he pulled out all the stops to build a company and a process entirely around that technology to make it commercial. And in this case, that means uh, reusable rockets. So just being able to reuse the booster, the main part of the rocket, is uh, massively cost saving. And the other is um, 3D printing of the engines. You know, these are the most complex, expensive parts of the machines. And to be able to design them to the maximum efficiency. Is what it's all about. And so he's built his entire company around, you know, the process of developing, producing those things. It's all vertically integrated like Tesla. And it's just been very successful.
2: And where's the demand coming from? Who's paying for this technology?
5: You well, know, this is all about satellites at the moment. Communication satellites, we're getting a boom in low Earth orbit. These broadband networks we're hearing more and more about that are starting to launch. But getting communication satellites into high orbit, you know, that's the bread and butter of the business. But then Musk can supplement it with a number of other things. And I think this is why SpaceX is doing so well, because it can spread the cost of launch across so many payloads now and really bring down the unit cost. So the other things that are really working for him, while well, he's launching his own satellites for his own network. So he's got a captive in-house launch service. He's winning contracts for NASA. He's shipping cargo to the International Space Station and people since uh, a year or so back. And now uh, he's just won, I think, the biggest contract this year, the Moon Lander, which won't come for a number of years, but it's you know nearly a $3 billion contract. So these things are all adding to a program which has got real scale.
2: Richard, do you see any risks or obstacles in his way?
5: You know, being Musk, there is always massive risk, uh, and it's risk that he takes on and he, he really kind of charges into. And the biggest risk of all is Starship. It's the giant new rocket that he's building, and he's putting all his eggs in this basket. I mean, this is what he built his company for, to take people to Mars. He needed something huge, and that huge thing is taking shape. He doesn't have clearance to launch it yet. He hasn't proved that it can get any further than, you know, a couple of miles up. And so I think we're going to hear for the next two or three years, you know, the struggles of Starship, how he's going to try and make this thing operational. If it does work, and I think most people in the industry assume he'll get there in the end. Again, it'll be another huge leap forward. It'll bring down the cost of getting to space and it'll put him just another big jump ahead of everybody else.
2: Richard Waters is the FT's West Coast editor. And before we go, three economists in the U.S. have won this year's Nobel Prize. David Card from the University of California, Berkeley, shares the award with MIT professor Joshua Angrist and Guido Imbens from Stanford. The prize committee said the three had revolutionized empirical research by looking at the real world implications of policies like the minimum wage and immigration. One of the winners, David Card, said he first thought the phone call from the Nobel committee was a practical joke, and he insisted his contributions were modest. But he did add that by focusing on real life issues like education and healthcare, he did, quote, oversimplify a field that's often very theoretical. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
3: At Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
0: Korky Koyman from Denker Capital joins us now. He's our go-to guy when it comes to financial services, and I've got some really uh, puzzling questions to ask you, Korky, about share prices of South African banking stocks. But before we get there, big day for you guys at Denker Capital – By signing up with Janus Henderson. Now, this is one of the, well, I suppose the 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 marquee names in international fund management. How did you find them, or how did they find you?
7: Yeah, no, Alec, it it is indeed uh, quite a big step for us, and um, actually, we're looking. To set up shop here in South Africa to distribute their products, and uh, they got in contact with us to see if we could help them find somebody. And yeah, as we started talking, said, "But you know, why don't you do it with us?" And uh, they really liked that, and they did quite a bit of homework, obviously as well. Um It it actually yeah for us to work for the organisation like that or that size, four hundred and thirty billion dollars in assets and. Three hundred and fifty investment professionals across the world it, it, it's it's big, but what really they liked is through us they can get immediate uh, as someone on the ground who's working for them who can put them on the, their products on the platforms get the the regulatory approvals and in terms of for us um, it helps because the products which they want to launch. And I'm going to start with is a sustainable growth fund, uh, which is very much you know the the way the world is going. A property fund, which is obviously very interesting. It's this is European uh, property, and um, and then a tech fund. So you know three topical funds that we ourselves uh, don't offer. So for our marketing team, uh, this is quite good. Uh, they've got a, a wider range to distribute. And uh, and obviously, um, they can bring the name of Janus Henderson
0: to our clients as well. Also, for the South African market, to have direct access to those three funds is a good thing. Are you going to be able to invest in them with rands or does it have to then be converted into U.S. dollars and so on?
7: Yeah, I suppose that will initially it will be uh, the existing funds, but I'm sure yeah, as time goes by and when there's enough interest that you do it, the normal feeder fund. The problem with feeder funds are always a bit more expensive because of the extra charge. But for investors, you get you can put in rands immediately. So I'm sure that will be the aim.
0: Well, it's uh, good news for you. It feels a little bit like uh, when we did our initial relationship with the Wall Street Journal, for instance, a big international name, and then with the Financial Times of London. So it's always good to have these connections. A heck of a lot more comes than just having the products on your books. Cocky, but the point of this conversation is to find out from you what the heck is going on with our banking shares. And I want to play around a little bit. Let's start with ABSA. ABSA pre-COVID traded at 160 to one hundred and eighty rand a share at the worst of COVID it went down to 80 rand now it's at 140 so it still hasn't got back to pre-COVID levels what's happening here is this investors telling us that ABS is not the bank it was uh, before the COVID hit uh, almost two years ago Uh,
7: yes (laughs) in short But, but but there's a lot behind that so you're quite right and it's interesting The banks so far haven't surpassed their 2019 earnings. Capitech is the only one that has. Um, Because a couple of things happened. Obviously, firstly, COVID uh, really hit um, volumes. And the banks throughout the world uh, increased provisions for potential bad debts. Um, South Africa, a couple of things happened at the same time. COVID hit uh, the country poorly, uh, badly, in that sense that, you know, we already have, were a fairly indebted country in terms of our, our government debt to GDP. Uh, some of the responses uh, were good. Some of the responses weren't good. But through COVID, the growth prospects for the South African economy have actually diminished. Uh, and then, obviously, you had the KwaZulu, KwaZulu-Natal uh, riots, which actually further did damage due to, to, to South Africa. So, the banks, in terms of the return on capital, are still below where they were in 2019. Um, for instance, I mean, APSA was on a um, return on capital of, of uh, 16 17% in 2019-18, it fell to as low as a 6% ROE in 2020. But this year, uh, we forecasted to have a 14% ROE. So, still not where it was. So, the valuations are still not where they were. Going forward, a lot is going to depend on on what government does. If it does start participating with the private sector, if it does start making the right decisions, but – with the lower growth and the higher risk of bad debts, um, the banks are remaining cheaper than they were before COVID.
0: Standard Bank's a little bit like APSA in that it was trading at 180 to 200 rand a share. It went down yeah. to 100. Now it's at 140. So it's it's a bit away from uh, where it was in, in 2018, 2019, but, but not serious. And I'm sure the thesis you've given us now – applies to that one yeah. as well. But looking yeah. at Capitec, you mentioned Capitec. Now, here is your outlier. Before COVID, yeah. it was trading at 1,200 to 1,400 rand a share. It's now 1,700 rand a share. So, actually, it's gone yeah. way beyond the pre-COVID level. Yeah. Is it justified? Yeah.
7: Uh, Capitec is now fairly expensive, but but um, yeah, I've been foolish enough to say that for a long time. <laughs> It's, it it's one of those shares because of its ability to compound and just keep growing. Uh, I did the homework and, and checked every time in the past when it was at this level and you thought it's too expensive. And had you bought it, even at that point where it's expensive, which, remember, is difficult for us as value-based managers, it still outperformed the rest of the sector on a three-year basis, even when you bought it from expensive level, simply because the return on capital is higher than the others. And the share of the value growth just keeps compounding at 20%. So Capitec came through COVID very well. Firstly, um, it really started pushing transaction income faster uh, to the extent where its fee income now almost covers its operational expenditure. It kept growing its client base dramatically. So, Capitech has actually come through it very well, and you can see that on the share price. Interesting, Standard Bank, ABSA, Standard Bank has also had its issues um, with Liberty. Also in Africa, you know, the rest of the African continent has also been hard hit by COVID, volumes down, still the vaccination process still slow, and that's also hurt Standard Bank. But where ABSA, funny enough, were already on a on a comeback trail. Uh, they had done a lot of heavy lifting, and so they've actually come through it fairly well. We're fairly positive on what on what APSA is doing and where they're going.
0: So we've got Digg as the outperformer. Just behind it is first Rand. Here, yes. pre-COVID, 65 to 70 Rand. Went all the way down to 40 Rand. It's now back in the 60s. So it's not that yeah. far away from where it was uh, before COVID. Does this tell us that first round of all the banks has weathered the storm best. Yes.
7: Uh, first first round's management team were certainly on the front foot. Uh, also, they were fairly cautious and you know one could even say maybe they were too cautious um, and they've actually said with their last set of results that when they'll start opening the taps again, get more um, less conservative on, on credit extension. But FirstRan had one other differentiator. They did an acquisition in the UK, Aldermore, um, which has come through very well for them as well. And Aldermore's results were actually fairly good and, and that helped them maintain a fairly high, uh, high rating. But you're quite right. I think what investors are maybe missing is that all the banks continue to grow their shareholder value. Um, but if you look at the PE or the price to net asset value that the market is putting on those, then the market is still not convinced that these banks will grow at the same rate now post-COVID than they did before COVID.
0: So the two that value investors have got to be looking at, and we're talking about the big six banks in South Africa, have to be Ned Bank and Investec. And let's start with Nedbank. Story here, it was trading at 250 to 280 rand a share pre-COVID, Went all the way down to eighty Rand a share. It's now at one sixty eight. Yep. So it's a long way still. Uh, yep. Lots of potential upside yep. just to get back to pre COVID levels. What are we to make of this? Is this stock now shouting at us, please buy me?
7: It it is. I I think both both Ned and Absa are are standout uh, good value. Uh, stocks and and the problem often when you invest in value stocks so-called as a philosophy that you're hoping that that there's something wrong which made the market uh, downgrade the stocks and you're hoping for a turnaround in this case both companies uh of operating uh, very well management teams are on the front foot it's just the environment that the market is worried about so if the environment changes as it is, um, and and commodity prices stay higher, which obviously helps you know, a lot of things in the, our budgets, in terms of, of of interest rates. Then these stocks will re-rate. Um, Netbank, as you recall, was hit the hardest because it had a fairly high property exposure, uh commercial property. And, um, but they, that's very well provided for. And maybe the market's still worried a bit about that. But, you know, as, as the economy starts growing, those, those problem loans, if they are, they're not so far, we haven't heard of big problems, but yeah, commercial property is a more difficult space, but net bank, I think, will, uh, has fully provided for that and come through. So I think you're quite right in that. On any measure, the banks in South Africa are still cheap, a bit like the banks in Europe. Um, The U.S. banks have re-rated the most globally. They're actually getting to not quite expensive, but higher levels. Um, But the S.A. banks still stand out.
0: The last one, Investec. It's uh, also in a Nedbank type level where the share price was 90 to 100 rand pre-COVID, went all the way down to 30 rand and is now doubled from that level. But even at 60 Rand where it is now, it's quite some distance from where the pre-COVID level was. So is it like Nedbank, uh, affected by property, but also looking extremely interesting value? Yeah.
7: yeah. You'll, by the way, recall, I think we had a call, was it April 2020, where you, know, you asked me, and I said, this is investment opportunity of a lifetime.
6: <laughs> you are and uh, we, we reckon
7: uh, we said you yeah, know you should double if you invest in uh, specifically banks at that stage. Because the market had just totally, totally overreacted to what was happening. Now investing is one where a lot has changed. 91 is our new management team. Uh the market's been very worried about what it sees as a, as a as a subscale UK operation. Um, but Investec, the new team, I must say, have really come through, um, the crisis well as well. Uh, it remains an incredibly good franchise. And, uh, so the challenge remains still in the UK where they've done cost cutting. Um, and so Investec, I agree with you. It's in fact in our, the NetBank financials fund we manage. It's, it's the third largest exposure, uh, because of its valuation. And then you still get the, um, you get a good management team, and you get exposure to uh, pounds, which should is a harder currency again, you know, for in case the South African uh, investment case doesn't come through.
3: This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Brad Rock. The first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes.
5: How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why... South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered
6: credit provider. T's and C's apply.
0: Stephen Nathan is uh, joining us as per always on a Tuesday. Lovely to see you, Stephen. Uh, Sad news about Alan Greenblow, who passed away yesterday. Did you have much to do with him?
8: I did, but... You know, when I actually I just saw your article this morning, and it really hit me in the the stomach because Alan actually phoned me last week. I think it was either Thursday or Friday. He was celebrating 16 years in his publication, The Today's Today's Trustee, uh, and I sent him a congratulatory note. And he just phoned me to say uh, we haven't spoken in a while. You know, what are you up to? Uh, he said he, he he didn't want to lose people like me to the industry. You know, people who are kind of quite 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 vocal and trying to. Give a different perspective and trying to put sort of retirement fund members' interests first. And we had, a, you know, we had a wonderful chat. And he was full of beans. Uh, you know, seventy-six years old. He's passionate about his publishing. Uh, today's trustee. And uh, I think it's a great lesson. You know, one of the great lessons I think Alan taught us all is you don't want to retire. Uh, although he was in the retirement industry at seventy-six years uh, old, he was very young and passionate. And you know, so it was a complete shock uh, to read your article uh, this morning, but he. You know, he was an amazing uh, person and, you know, someone who put others' interests first you know, and was really trying to make you know, a difference and be heard in this really critical, important uh, retirement fund industry. So a very, very sad loss. You know, unfortunately, in the, in the investment industry, in the retirement fund industry, you know, most people are here to make money off the investor, off the fund member. Uh, and you do get those rare few that are... You know, really, their heart is in the right place, and Alan would be at the top of that list.
0: I got a letter from John Kane Berman, well, an email, and he said the same thing. He said he spoke to Alan, in fact, on Friday, and uh, he was in top form, very excited about today's trustee and where he was going forward with it. But I guess it also gives us the lesson that life is fragile.
8: Yeah, you never know. I mean, it really, you know, one of the positives that I took out of it is that
0: he certainly seemed to
8: be in very good health and in good spirits. There, there doesn't appear to be any suffering and you know and 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 he was doing what he loved you know until a very good age at 76 as you said you never know but i think you know ellen uh you know i once in fact i saw quite recently someone's talking about you know they, they they asked this person what do you define as success and uh, the person said that well you know it's 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 the legacy i leave behind and what people will say you know when i'm no longer here and you know ellen uh, i happen to be on linkedin uh, rosemary hunter I saw uh, you know she wrote something about in fact uh, referencing your uh, your article and there was many comments i can't remember maybe a hundred comments uh, and and you know all extremely positive so the legacy that that adam left behind his family you know he can be immensely proud of the uh, the impact he certainly made a very big impact and you know there's going to be a lot of people in the retirement fund industry that have made more money than alan but there's going to be very few that have left a bigger impact and impacted others. You know, and I think that's a you know that's a that's a wonderful legacy. It's a bit like John Bogle uh, on the Vanguard side, Vanguard being the second largest uh, uh, mutual company, so uh, what we would understand as an investment unit trust company in the world. Uh, and Bogle uh, never owned a share in the company. Uh, yet he grew that company from a few billion dollars of assets. Uh, Today, it's about, I think, $7 trillion, something outrageous. Uh, But he never profited uh, from that. Uh, He could have made a lot of money. So once again, in the investment industry, there'd be a lot of people that are more wealthy, that have made a lot more money out of it, but very few that have given as much as John Bogle and as an Alan Greenblow in a South African retirement fund context.
0: Thanks for that. I I appreciate that you actually put that forward because it is very much a sense that I had from the man himself, having known him for as long as I did. Unfortunately, I didn't speak to him last week, so I missed out on, on uh, saying, well, and, on having that conversation. But moving on to other issues, and and I'd love to get your insights into what's going on, or, or a more perhaps balanced approach towards the uh, newspaper headlines, uh, business day this morning, screaming about the PPC share price up nearly 10%. And so they should be screaming because PPC's had a rough time. But the reason why it rose was because the treasury is now interfering in the economy in a big way by saying, if you want to do business or build anything for government, you have to use locally manufactured cement in this case. Where does it end, though? To me, it's at a bit of a slippery slope, because now it might, thereafter, it might be locally manufactured steel, locally manufactured f- instrumentation, etc. So, of course, PPC are celebrating, and of course, the local cement uh, industry, which not too long ago was a cartel, if we recall, is saying, well, uh, now you won't, uh, no longer the dumped imports uh, will be dropped into South Africa. but. There's two sides to this. It it's not always a very good thing. In fact, it's never a good thing when government starts intervening uh, in the market process.
8: Uh, yes, I mean very. Uh, I was I was surprised. I was surprised from from many aspects. I mean, you know, if, if we look at a top down, Alec, um, and I think I've described this as of others before. You know, if you look at a government, uh, there's more or less two models. You know, the one model is you can say the government knows better. The government is, 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 is cleverer than, than uh, its citizens, uh, including businesses, and the government can allocate resources. So the government can allocate resources, you know, who should be mining, who should be in retail, uh, who should be running education, uh, what we should import, what we should export, the tariffs we should impose on that. So, you know, the government, and then if you take that to the extreme, it would be communism. Uh, And then on the other extreme, you've got uh, the free market capitalism, where you say that uh, the private sector is much better at allocating resources and looking at opportunities. Um, You know, those are briefly the two two models. And if you look at economic successes, we know that uh, hands down capitalism is one. It's not perfect. Um, but hands down in capitalist societies, people are wealthier they are generally much happier uh, they have have higher standards of living, better education uh, increased literacy uh, increased longevity all of all of all of those very good things um and um you know this african government uh sort of its roots are definitely in the communist, more in the communist camp than the capitalist camp um and we've seen policies that are are a lot more socialist than Uh, than capitalists and many of those policies are deserved but not that but they aren't all deserved Um, and what is interesting here as you say you know firstly what i find interesting is that it's a national treasury decision not a competition commission or a department of trade and industry decision Uh, because what you would expect is if that there was unfair trade practices you know then either the competition commission or Department of Trade and Industry who regulates tariffs you know would would get involved it, it, it would seem to sit in that in that area of policy, not national treasury that basically you know writes out checks to the various departments uh, so that, you know that that was surprising uh, and then the second thing is the the, the decision in and of itself because um, as you say, what you what you're doing is you are favoring a more expensive product. And while it might be good for the company, a company, uh, but for the, you know someone's going to pay the price. so if we are if we are, are uh, using more expensive materials, then it's going to increase the cost of infrastructure and it's going to mean that we're going to need more taxes for the same amount of infrastructure. Uh, which is interesting is that uh, saw PVC and maybe it's, maybe it's the cement industry in South Africa talking about uh, that it's great because um, these cheaper imports, the quality is inferior. Uh, and and they made a bunch of comments saying that, uh, uh, that that uh, you know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more inferior product. But then you would expect the market to say, well, you know, I've got to look at the quality of what I'm getting versus the price I'm paying uh, and for the market to decide. And that's much more the way that I would prefer things to happen where the market decides rather than a government decision, because it's likely that it's going to increase costs for all of us in one way or another.
0: It's interesting when you unpack the computational uh, solution to this here you have bureaucrats sitting in pretoria with perhaps pocket calculators deciding on something whereas the market takes everything into account exactly as you've made the the point now quality etc and it computes real time uh with a this a computer which is impossible to build and sometimes that is forgotten and missed uh, amongst central planners. But moving on to another part of the market, which is the Johannesburg Stock Exchange itself, we saw again in Business Day this morning that there were announcements of two D-listings. It's a trend that is now uh, continuing to, uh, certainly isn't tapering off. It seems to be gathering momentum, if anything else. On the one hand, I guess you could say the D-listings are not, bad, not a bad idea because the shareholders in those companies are now getting proper value for them. But on the other hand, if you continue to delist companies from the JSE or from the stock exchanges in South Africa, uh, the choice for investors has to get increasingly limited.
8: Yes, uh, you're right, Alec. I mean, the, the you know one would gauge um, the health of, of of an economy by its stock market. You know, so if 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 the stock market is doing well. And we look at the stock market doing well from a couple of things. The one is, you know, uh, our prices rising. So is the level of the stock market going up? Uh, are companies uh, profits increasing? Um, and uh, uh, is the number of companies listed on the stock market increasing? Because one of the one of the main reasons for the stock market from a company perspective is to raise capital uh, cheaply and effectively and quickly. Um, so the more companies that are raising capital, that are that are listed, tells you that there is a demand for capital, and companies use capital to invest, uh, to 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 kind of you know uh, grow their businesses, to invest uh, uh, in the country, to create jobs. Um, it wasn't that long ago, and you might know this better than me, Alec. I'm trying to think. Uh, um, our Reserve Bank Governor talking about the the amount of cash that companies are holding. Uh, I can't remember the number. Was was a,
0: it was over a trillion rand. Over
8: a trillion rand. And this is this is this is what they call non-financial companies. So it's not banks or insurance companies that hold that hold cash. Uh, you know, and that's 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 the other side of this coin is that companies are cash flush. Uh, they don't have the opportunities or the confidence or the long-term certainty to invest that money on behalf of shareholders, and that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing companies hoard cash and not invest. And then, as a consequence, uh, fewer companies need to raise capital. Uh, the price of these companies, uh, the, the you know, if you go below below sort of the top sixty on the JC, the liquidity falls a lot and the interest falls a lot uh, in these companies as well. So they're not really making a big difference to the portfolios. Unfortunately, you know, if you look at these companies, I think uh, laris's market or the the uh, the valuation is about five hundred million. Uh, CSG is is is, is under two hundred million. So they're very very small when you look at the you know, they would be rounding areas in a portfolio. So they're not making much of a difference in, uh, uh, in pension funds' lives, in big asset managers' lives, and there isn't a demand for for them. The cost of, of them being listed is quite high. Um, so, so it isn't a great situation for the big picture for most of us. But as you say, in a very narrow segment, you know, some shareholders might be doing well in the short run, but this doesn't create value in the medium to long run.
3: For great wines at the right price delivered direct to your door anywhere in the country, look no further than the Biz News Wine Shop. Go directly to www.biznewsshop.com for a quick, easy solution to curated wines with the Biz News community front of mind.
0: Good to be talking to James Ball again of the Bureau for Investigative Journalism. James, before we talk about smokescreen, because that's the focus, what are you guys busy with at the moment?
9: So we have just been uh, very busy publishing on uh, COVAX, uh, which, you know, of course, promised it would have by the end of this year, two billion doses of vaccines across the world and uh, has admitted that uh, not only will it miss that, but it's been responsible for fewer than 5% of shots in arms, through this year. So this kind of hope for the world of uh, getting everyone jabbed has uh, sort of not yet been living up to anything anyone would want. So uh, as well as our smokescreen work, we've been quite busy with that.
0: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure you aren't getting lots of support from the bureaucrats who don't like to be shown up in issues like this.
9: um, No, I think it's safe to say they weren't thrilled at people sort of independently asking a few questions and trying to uh, see how it went. But um, our reporter spoke to representatives from um, quite literally two dozen countries. So uh, she got a pretty good picture of what was happening.
0: Getting back to Smokescreen, this is the story that we've been covering over the past few weeks. Indeed, in South Africa, it's been a big story for some years now in the tobacco industry. Uh, We are now into episode five of the eight episodes. Uh, in this series. Uh, what's the reaction been like before we get into what we can anticipate from the episode itself?
9: I mean it's it's been interesting internationally I think especially in Britain because quite a lot of sort of the spying activity and all the things that were planned were ordered out of the UK. BAT is of course headquartered here um, and the story is just not nearly as well known outside of South Africa as it is as it is there, as it is here. And so we've really kind of seen some surprise from people and almost some incredulity at kind of, hey, how come they were doing this for so long? How come no one said anything? How come it, it was allowed to happen? And so we're starting to see some quite interesting political reaction here. And there's, um, there's calls on the UK Serious Fraud Office and on others to perhaps reopen inquiries into what happened as really there's not been very much action uh against some very very questionable behavior
0: reopen so did they look into it in the past
9: yes the the serious fraud office uh, had had an investigation into it and essentially they didn't acquit british american tobacco but they said there wasn't enough evidence that they could be confident of a conviction which is quite a high bar to set yourself Especially when several of the key people that we spoke to in the podcast, people who talk on the record on the podcast, um, will freely say that they would happily talk to the Serious Fraud Office, they would give them documents, they would sort of back things up, and the SFO never approached them. Um, And so, you know, one way to make sure there won't be enough evidence is not to look for it. Um, Now, I don't think that's some deliberate sort of corruption or anything like that, but they're a really underfunded little body. And so, you know, they just don't seem really to have had the resources to, to even sort of look into it as much as we could as, you know, journalists. And, uh, you know, we don't have warrants. We can't sort of force people to produce anything. And so if we're able to find more than they are, something's gone a bit wrong.
0: Oh, indeed it has. What about British American Tobacco? Uh, it's a huge company. A reaction from its side?
9: Um, I mean, safe to say they have denied all wrongdoing. Um, you know, we have had some very, very long letters from them explaining how everything they've done is is fine. Um, but actually, we sort of tackle this quite a lot in this week's episode. They they always insist that any efforts they were doing in terms of surveillance or recruiting their this network of spies that they recruited was all about preventing illicit tobacco smuggling, you know, that they were on the side of the Angels. The question is, quite a lot of the activities that they seem to commission just don't seem to have anything to do with stopping smuggling. Um, you know, one of the things that we we have someone in this episode discuss is that they, um, essentially, they offered someone money to give an internal document from one of BAT's rivals. Now, that just looks like old-school corporate espionage. I don't know how at all you can justify that as an anti-smuggling operation. Um, It also gets very legally difficult for them uh, with those sorts of requests. And so, you know, it seems quite hard to take on face value that this was all about smuggling. And we've sort of asked them to set out, well, you know, where are all the smuggling convictions that you got? Where are the smuggling operations that you broke up? And they don't seem to be able to do that either um and so it's it's sort of quite telling if they've managed to set up this huge network of spies on one grounds that they're helping law enforcement and it's actually something else entirely
0: corporate espionage do you have you come across any plausible deniability you know the old story where people higher up the chain uh say well i didn't know about it uh so you can't a uh, finger me on it it might have been people down the chain or was it really just got to the stage where they're exonerating themselves completely
9: well when you when you cover this type of story you almost always see plausible deniability you tend to find it's done by contractors or the most senior person that knows about it is a manager in the country where it's happening you know you tend to see that big distance this is different This isn't just sort of some country leaders and some senior BAT executives in South Africa. We have emails that come from BAT's head office. Um, And one of the most interesting sort of bits of the operation, um, I mean, and this is, I quite like this. This is like James Bond stuff. They set up a fake recruitment company. Um, And BAT is apparently and allegedly was very involved in setting this up. This wasn't just the contractor. They set up a fake recruitment company and advertise fake jobs in the tobacco industry so that they can interview and do fake job interviews with loads of potential people working for their competitors. And any who they think would be really useful and really interesting, they then hire as uh, spies often telling them that they're spying for law enforcement. These people don't know they're spying for BAT. Some of them think they're just spying for police and, you know, helping helping with that. Um, and people got paid up to sort of, you know, some pretty substantial amounts of money, um, I think in pounds, I'm afraid. So some of them were getting sort of £3,000, £7,000, um, which is a really, really decent chunk of cash.
0: Well, you mustn't. Um, you better not convert that into rands because it's more than a decent chunk. Seven thousand pounds, one hundred and forty thousand rand. That's uh, that's a proper bribe.
9: Yeah, yeah. And so the people didn't necessarily know that they were doing something illicit. They may have thought they were being paid informants by law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, BAT was involved in setting that up. And so it's hard to see how they can go, well, we just thought this was completely on the line and it was the contractors that took it too far. Um, and that's sort of the strange thing with this one. They, The BAT seem to have been pretty confident to act with, you know, impunity.
0: It is so interesting, isn't it? And now, on the one hand, they're telling themselves at this big corporation that the law enforcement authorities can't do their job. So we have to step in to help them doing their job. However, they're opening themselves wider uh, to allegations of corporate, uh, corporate espionage because of the way they're going about it. So even if they were on the side of the angels, the questions that you've been asking at the Bureau uh, would leave the rational mind to say, hang on a minute, there was something very big in it for them, not just in serving the public purpose.
9: Exactly that. They, they've at the very minimum left themselves open to some very reasonable suspicions, even in the minds of people who would be want to be very fair to them or generous to them or sort of be happy to accept, well, you know, maybe they want to be a good corporate citizen and do their bit to stop smuggling when they've gone this far and they've been this inventive and sort of, you know, this network of spies, we think it had more than 200 people in it. Um, they've they've really you know opened themselves up to doubts in the minds of fair people
0: well let's have a listen to the teaser now well the latest episode of a smokescreen which you can get on audi.co also by searching within spotify or apple itunes coming up on
9: smokescreen
2: I expect
1: that this is the same version of events and fabrications of our friend and the criminal syndicates which fund the failed writing endeavours.
9: We hear more from Belinda Walter, the double agent who spied for British American tobacco and then brought its network of informants into the light.
2: So they give me a card. He tells me, and I've got voice recordings, just two weeks ago I made him
4: talk into the microphone. Can we prove it? I've got the cards, and I've got the conversation,
9: yeah. In episode five, we find out how British American Tobacco, or BAT, recruited its informants to spy on competitors across the tobacco industry.
5: The easiest way to gather intelligence is by paying somebody, you know? Um, Call it corruption, call it bribery, you know? But money talks, and a lot of hungry people in South Africa a lot of people will do um, a lot of things if you pay them money.
9: The insiders have their own opinions about what was going on, but we're curious about what BAT has to say.
0: Well, thanks for being with us this 12th of October from me, Alec Hogg, my colleagues, uh, Nadia Swat and Jared Neves, and the whole team at Biz News. We look forward to being back in your company again, same time, same place, tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.